Greetings, Alpha Seekers. It's uh, Tribune Sunday. So it took me all day to read it, but it won't take you all day. All you have to do is spend an hour or less. Try to be brief here. Let's see. Uh, One thing that occurred to me as I was reading this was talking about losses during COVID. I personally have lost uh, many friends. Some have died during the pandemic, either of COVID or other causes. And uh, some to politics, you know. Some people have uh, stopped listening to me or talking to me. So it's been a tough time, but so it goes. Uber is launching passenger verification, according to Robert Shannick in the trib. Uh, So you need, uh, if you set up an account with an anonymous form of payment, other than like a credit card, then you have to upload a driver's license or a state ID or a passport before booking a ride. And it also applies to Uber Eats. So you need an ID to get an Uber. You need an ID to get Uber Eats to deliver to you. But you don't need an ID to vote. That makes sense. Um, And, of course, the reason you need an ID is because, you know, it's like they used to rob pizza delivery guys. Now they rob Uber Eats guys. They, They need some money, so they call up and order an Uber Eats and rob them. Uh, And I don't know if Uber Eats takes cash. I don't think it does. But in the case of the Uber Eats and Uber drivers, they're just taking their car. So uh, we had, uh, let's see, somewhere in here. There were in 2020, there were over 1,400 carjackings, 135% year over year increase, highest since 2001. So it's not worse than it's ever been, but it's worse than it's been in 20 years. And it's we're at an even faster pace uh, this year. You know, we set records here in Chicago. They're all bad. So there's been 376, I think, carjackings uh, through mid-March. Nearly 40 of those have been rideshare drivers. So... There's 75,000 rideshare drivers registered in Chicago. Now, they're making 33 bucks an hour. So those of us who are looking for second careers. But my wife has told me that she doesn't want me to be an Uber driver. And that basically makes two of us. So there's that. Not good. <clears throat> now, in the realist, that was the business section. That's all that was worth reading far as I was concerned. Now, there's a new program called Illinois Smart Buy, which helps homeowners or home buyers with student loans. It doesn't say anywhere in here that it's first-time home buyers. You would think it would be. It'll pay up to $40,000 in student loans uh, and give you $5,000 toward a down payment. JB allocated $25 bucks to serve between... 600 and 1,000 homeowners, and there's plenty of that money left out there because only 200 people have applied uh, for it. So, you know, my wife still, still owns student loans. So 
I may try that. I don't know. I don't know what the logic of that is, really. Why should the state do that? I don't know. But they're doing it. Evidently, they got money to burn. So Trust is one of the places you can go to to get that. And there's an article also in the real estate section, uh, which says the full year date is in. This is by Zach Wichter of Bankrate.com. So this is like an advertorial, I guess. The full year data is in, and it's officially time to put the cities are dead narrative to bed. I'm not so sure about that, but let's hope so. Because my house is still in the market, if you know anybody who wants to come down here. It's hard to find people who are smart enough to make the kind of money you need to get this house and dumb enough to want to live here. And that's been my problem. Two showings over the weekend, no bids. Okay, 16% of respondents moved in 2020. That rate jumped to 32% for Gen Z, 26% for Millennials. People moved to be closer to family and friends, which basically means they got out of Manhattan or wherever and went to live with their parents to get a better cost of living, same thing, or to seek more space, which is different. Top three cities for move-outs, Manhattan, Houston, in Austin, but they only netted a loss of 15,000, which is weird. Uh, the rest of the top 10 all lost under 10,000 net, which I don't know, that doesn't seem to quite add up to the 16%. But getting deeper in the detail, uh, 10% relocated due to COVID, and we're still relocated as of February. 6% moved out, but then came back, which is encouraging. 84% didn't move at all. So that adds up with the first stat. And let's see. Well, that's about it, I guess. So hopefully the city will come back, or the people will come back to the city, and somebody will buy my freaking house. we got here. All right, that gets us through business and real estate, folks. We're moving right along. There is a great deal of skepticism. We have heard originally that this was people of color. I saw a stat that the Marines are having trouble getting Marines to get vaccinated. Uh, but now the narrative by Jay Reeves of the Associated Press is that it's rural whites who are reluctant to get the vaccine. And, you know, if you're way out there and there's not much of it, then I guess that would make some sense. 25% of Americans say they definitely won't or probably won't get the vaccine, which is lower than it was. Um, let's see. This is Winston County, Alabama. Haleville. And let's see. There's a big number here someplace. And there's, there's two theories here. And I don't know where they put this percentage. It's a high percentage. That's all I can tell you. That should be right up front. But they're, the point they're making is that it's, oh, only 7% have been vaccinated. 
Now, the question is whether it's the skepticism or supply, because later in the article, if you get all the way to the end, Lakeland Community Hospital in Haleyville says our only hurdle has been vaccine availability. So, you know, how are they allocating this stuff? But there is a fellow here named uh, Mobley. Oh, no, this is a woman, Christy Mobley. She says, I'm not, I'm just going to wait and make sure you don't grow a third eyeball or something. Well, you know. So, you know, vaccination is going to be a challenge even when we have enough of it. Now they're already clamoring for us to send it overseas, of course. So. Anyway. Here's a producer who aims to cater to a 50-plus crowd. Movie producer, Landline Pictures. Good name. Uh, they cite a series called Grace and Frankie, a comedic portrait of aging starring Jane Fonda, who I can't stand, and Lily Tomlin. Uh, it's been on for seven seasons. I was just exposed to it uh Within the last couple of days, my wife likes it, and I think it's terrible. So, you know. Anyway, though, my latest harebrained scheme to make money is to uh, try to do stories for screenplays for old people. So I'm, I'm keeping that one. Now, here's where the fun always begins in the... Uh, the main section, section one or whatever, the news, the news section, the news hole, as, as we advertising people call it. Uh, they're rethinking the foot chase policy uh, for police. And, you know, when you used to play cops and robbers as a kid, you know, the idea was that the cops would chase the robbers. Well, now the idea is going to be that the cops won't chase the robbers. And, uh, you know, the whole paper basically is about the police and their unfortunate uh, use of firearms in trying to enforce the law. So, you know, the one here, some guy, they were trying to cuff a dude in... Uh, on the subway, and everybody here is is of color, I think. The cops definitely are. You can see in the picture. And the, I, I assume Roman was. And at some point, uh, what did they do? They shot the guy, I guess, eventually. And they used pepper spray, and now they're in trouble. You know... So, who's going to want to be a cop in this town? That's my question. I don't think they're going to necessarily need to defund the police. I mean, basically, they might as well disarm them. Because, you know, and if you let that word get out, then you're going to need somebody to protect the cops. So the other one is this unfortunate situation. And there's another guy named Roman. Wait a minute, could this be true? My gosh. Yeah, here's Ariel Roman. I wonder if these guys are related. 
And then there's Ruben Roman, 21. I think he's probably, he's Hispanic, I believe. So maybe the other guy's Hispanic, too. So Ruben has been uh, out on uh, probation for previous gun uh, crimes. Now he's got to post 15 grand and he's out on an ankle bracelet pending trial. He just failed to show up for another <laughs> court appearance. So what are the odds Ruben's going to be around? So Ruben was walking down the street with this guy, Adam Toledo, who was actually a child, 13 years old. And he starts shooting at somebody in a car. And so uh, they've got this shot spotter thing. So the cops show up in less than a minute and they chase these guys and uh, they catch Ruben. But the kid, Adam, picks up his gun takes off and points it at the cops. They shoot him, and now we got a problem with the cops. So now the idea is we're going to have a uh, we're going to have a trial, or we're going to have a new policy on chasing people. Well, if you can't chase somebody with a gun, what you're not really even attacking gun crime anymore. Are you? I don't know. It doesn't seem to me. So you might as well defund the police because what are, what are they going to do? They can't chase these people. You think they're just going to stand there? I mean, come on. What is it, a human sacrifice? Uh, maybe, maybe the city should just get out of the policing business and you know say to the states, hey, look, we're defunding our police uh, you're going to have to do it, or the the states can then say, "Well, we're defunding the police, so you got to take care of it and send in." I mean, all the police departments are operating under consent degrees anyway, so maybe the police should be federalized. I don't know, but this is getting ridiculous. Even in the case of, um, let's see, the case of this is now this is another another case. I think. Oh yeah. 14-year-old Pedro Rios was running for the police on the 4th of July. He had a 44 Magnum, and he got shot dead, unfortunately. Uh, but they say he never pointed the gun at the police. Well, maybe he did, maybe he didn't. So he's got a lawyer, uh, Mark Brown, who's representing the family. Who, of course, they're suing the cops. But even he says, of course, you can't imagine a world where officers would never run after anybody. That's never going to happen, and it wouldn't be a safe environment. So, you know, what are we doing here? And this all happened in three minutes, this this one with uh, Toledo, I guess the kid's name it was. Uh, I... How are you supposed to flip through a policy manual? You know, I mean, the and there's one cop who says, if you have an armed suspect running with a gun, are you kidding me? What if the cops let someone go with a gun and then they hear the person shot someone? Well, then they're going to get nailed for that. So you're going to have to have a policy where the cop never gets in trouble for not pursuing an armed victim. And then if I'm a cop... If I'm a cop, I ain't even responding to the call, to be honest with you. You know, you can fire me for that then. 
but why should I risk my life if I'm going to get, you know, if I do something, I'm, I'm going to get fired. You know, they talk about guns are bad, but it's okay for the perpetrators to have them, evidently, when there's police chases involved. So, come on. I mean, this is getting insane in this town, in this country, I think. So, I know I'm an outlier here. So now, here's an article. There's a guy named uh, Ron... uh, Ron Onesti, who... I think he's the guy who runs this theater out in... St. Charles, where I know at least one of our listeners and, and I have gone to see concerts. Uh, Leanne Russell, I saw him, fortunately, <coughs> just in time, because he died right after that. But he is the president of the Joint Civic Committee of Italian Americans. And, you know, they took this statue, it was over in Little Italy, uh, kind of like daily Xing out Meg's Field. They just took it, you know. And he wants it back. And, uh, you know, I've given up on the statue thing. I mean, who even knew it was there, you know? But I thought that was interesting. There's pushback, apparently. And they should take it out to Elmwood Park or, you know, Chicago Heights or someplace. Let them try to take it down in a Heights, you know? And here's a guy, Edward Shimenti who says he's just a big teddy bear. He's 39, lived in Zion. And he and another friend of his, Joseph Jones, were convicted of supporting ISIS. And the prosecutors, this is a federal rap, got convicted for 13 and a half years or sentenced, uh, provided cell phones to undercover FBI agents to be used as detonators for bombs. Now, this guy doesn't sound like he knows what the hell he's even doing. Uh, and it does sound like he's been entrapped. So, I, I don't know if he was just playing around with this guy, but the FBI actually, like, I guess he was posting goofy videos on the web, and so they kind of targeted him. An undercover agent reached out and tried to lure him into this plot. Yeah, this guy doesn't fit the, the profile of the... Islamic terrorists, really. So. Now, National Poetry Month, uh, Marie Schmich, Mary Schmich, that's her name, who's kind of like my age, I didn't realize that. Looks young in her picture, but she's had a column on the trip for a while, and she's kind of turned into a poet. So, she puts up nine of her favorite poems, and I only like two of them. One is by John Updike. And uh, his poem is Perfection Wasted. And it's kind of a eulogy type. She thinks it has one of the best opening lines in poetry. It's called Perfection Wasted. And another regrettable thing about death is the ceasing of your own brand of magic, which took a whole life to develop and market. I don't think that's as good now as I thought it was, especially the third line. Human Family by Maya Angelou. 
I note the obvious differences between each sort and type, but we are more alike, my friends, than we are unalike. And I think that's true. We should keep that in mind as we tear each other apart over identity politics. Steve Chapman is on a roll. This is the second column in a row I agree with him on. City residents who don't own vehicles may be better served by vouchers that could be used for Uber and Lyft trips or for hourly car rental programs such as Zipcar. Cities could also incorporate on-demand microtransit systems that use buses or vans to pick up and drop off at locations and times that change automatically in accordance with passenger needs. This is in contrast to this big transportation infrastructure, you know, post-pandemic and, you know, if work from home stays in place, there's not going to be as much demand for public transportation as there was. So why not just use Uber to take you from point A to point B? When I was working for the census, people would tell me it took them two hours to get to a place where they were supposed to start working. It wasn't even worth it. So... And the public safety issues, of course, you know, if they're going to carjack the Ubers and Lyfts, then Eric Zorn writes a sad column, eyes front, drive like a chicken, avoid road rage. Now, I used to have a problem with road rage, but I gave it up. Um, but the whole column is like how if you don't want to get killed or carjacked, then just keep your eyes on the road and don't look at anybody and, you know, let people walk all over you or drive all over you on the road. Pretty sad commentary on the state of the city. In Chicago Flashback by Ron Grossman, there's an article about the tallest guy in the world ever who died in 1940. Eight feet, eight and a quarter inches. He had an overactive uh, thyroid, I think or pituitary, what, there's some gland, I obviously didn't get very far in biology, see if I can remember where this is, I didn't highlight it, but they talk about which gland was over, pituitary gland, the pituitary gland was over, hyperactive, now you can treat that, but you couldn't then, and he died, uh, when he was, what, 22, I think? Yeah. He was 8 foot 8 inches tall, 491 pounds. He had size 39 shoes. Wow. And he sued the AMA because they wrote an article about him and called him a freak, but he lost. Now today, I'm sure he would have won, but he wouldn't have been 9 feet tall or whatever. The editorial section in the Trib, and this is about to change, by the way, because they're going to be bought by some fairly progressive folks, and uh, whoever runs the Trib now runs a pretty conservative uh, editorial page, but that will change, and it'll be more like the Sun-Times, which makes you wonder why you even need two papers. Um, Or as we used to call it, the Slum Times, but seriously, folks, that was back before I became woke. Uh, let's see. Main article, when will CTU stop clout building and start thinking of students? And the answer, of course, is never. Spoiler alert, the Chicago Teachers Union 
the, the, the president, Jesse Sharkey, says that it's going to be continuous bargaining. And lest we forget, which I did, uh, there used to be more labor trouble with the city uh, in the educational area than there is now. They had nine walkouts between 69 and 87 and eight other threats to strike before Daly and the Republicans, remember them, uh, in the General Assembly? At one time, there were Republicans there, uh, like the dinosaurs used to roam the earth. And Daly made a deal with the Republicans and pushed a CPS reform bill that stopped the steady barrage of teacher strikes and he took control of the city, or took, the city took control of the uh, Chicago Public Schools, and you can see how well that worked. Well, actually, I think it worked to some degree, but I imagine that it's going to get undone. Uh, back, J.B. Pritzker just signed a bill that makes it easier for CPS teachers to go on strike, basically because they had limited the issues uh, they could bargain over, but now they include class size, subcontracting, staff assignments, you know, just about anything, instead of just uh, paying benefits. So now they're bringing things like uh, defunding the police, affordable housing, rent abatements to the table, which have nothing to do particularly with education except in the mind of the union. So that's going to be a disaster. That's going to be a worse disaster than it already is. Now, here's a Bloomberg Opinion editorial board piece that the trip picked up about America's defense industrial base. The U.S. spends more on its military than the next 10 countries combined, with the Pentagon's budget consuming more than half of all federal discretionary spending. America's influence abroad depends on its strength at home, Revitalizing the defense industrial base is essential, not only for national security, but also for the preservation of peace around the world. Amen. That sounds like a prayer. Uh, but the Biden administration, as the article does not know, but I do, put a very, very low increase in. I was surprised it was an increase at all. I'm sure that budget is dead on arrival because uh, it looks like the Senate is going to remain a an obstacle for the Biden agenda, which is really the Sanders-Warren agenda, AOC agenda, uh, because everybody's, you know, placating the left wing for fear of getting primaried and to keep the enthusiasm up for the midterms. All the energy is on the left in that party. So, uh, but it does look like because of Joe Manchin of West Virginia... Uh, not being willing to throw the filibuster out, that we may be able to uh, survive the next two years without too much radical change. But defense is not being starved yet. It's being uh, underfunded relative to other things, though. On relief for the homelessness, I think these are three of our Democratic Socialists aldermen, Carlos Ramirez Rosa, Jeanette Taylor, and Byron C... I don't know how to pronounce this. S-I-G-C-H-O. Sico Lopez. You know, I did major in Spanish, but 
And a good thing, considering the politics in this city. Uh, the mayor's office claims one of its main goals is to work toward a government that centers race and gender in all of its work and that equity and inclusivity are their North Star. Well, when you start claiming that, boy, you're in for some fun. Uh, let's see. She was supposed to raise the real estate transfer tax on properties over a million, which is me, and create dedicated funding and homelessness. Now, one of the problems you've got is that when you put homeless shelters in place, the homeless don't want to go there. Because guess what? Homeless people are not the easiest people to live with. You know, there's violence and all sorts of stuff. That So, homeless people pretty much like to limit their exposure to other homeless people. Don't we all, frankly? And... Uh, so unless you build them little miniature homes or, or whatever, separate apartments, and there'll be plenty of those. Maybe you can put them in all these vacant skyscrapers downtown. That's what they're talking about in New York, which will make Fun City even more fun. Um, but they point out, you know, this is a, the, the race card is really, you got a deck with 52 race cards is what it boils down to. And if I wasn't so woke, I'd say maybe aces of spades. But uh, black Chicagoans make up 61% of those experiencing homeless and 81% of students who are homeless. Uh, Racial equity cannot be achieved without ending homelessness. Well, ending homelessness is harder than you think, even if you throw money at it, I think. And it, it's a lot of these people on the street are mentally ill. And, of course, you can't do anything for their own good because one flew over the cuckoo's nest types of progressives made that involuntary institutionalization illegal. And are these folks better roaming the streets? I don't know. But that's where we're at. Now, here's a John Strauss of Campton Hills, wherever that is. Let respect and decency win out. After World War II, Japan and Germany had to come with terms, come to terms with the cruelty and bigotry of that period. And many European nations are coming to terms with their bigotry and complicity in the Nazi regime. And now it's our turn in the United States. So basically, he's comparing the United States to Japan and Germany. And the Nazis. I mean, really? So, anyway. But that's where we're at in this country. Uh, Clarence Page writes an article about... J.D. Vance, who wrote Hillbilly Elegy. Now, I haven't read that. And it shows that class and culture increasingly matter more than race in determining one's socioeconomic success in life. And this is true. You know, the the narrative is that white privilege, everybody who's white is rich, and everybody who's rich is white, and none of that's true. And either score, you know, the evidence is clear. And he gained unexpected national stardom to explain Trump to liberals 
by explaining flyover country because he both he and Clarence Page are from Middletown, Ohio, which couldn't be more flyover country. Vance's account of how family declined, childhood trauma, opioid abuse, loss of dignity and purpose after the elimination of manufacturing jobs gave three-dimensional life to Trump's forgotten man images and American carnage rhetoric. Uh, Folks on the losing side of globalization. And he says he shares with Vance a desire for civility and common ground. And I, I like Clarence Page, you know, he's a pretty reasonable person. Initially, the reaction to the Trump victory on the part of the Democrats was to try to figure out what they had missed in the white working class, but that only lasted a few weeks until the bile and vitriolic rhetoric that Trump voters were either racist or stupid or maybe Russia stole the election, and that was the end of trying to understand the Trump victory. And Trump still got 70 million votes, you know. So who are those folks? Are they all stupid? Are they all racist? Are they all Russian tools? I don't think they are. But J.D. is considering running for uh, Senate in Ohio. Rob Portman, who's a very nice and very reasonable and my kind of Republican back when I considered myself a Republican. Um, but J.D.'s thinking of running for Senate in Ohio to succeed him, being backed by Peter Thiel, who is a billionaire venture capitalist and co-founder of PayPal, and just happens to be gay, by the way. He's a gay conservative. They exist. And Jonah Goldberg, who's a libertarian, Writes for Reason. I know. Editor-in-chief of The Dispatch. He used to write for Reason, which was the libertarian rag. It's actually worth reading. Um, Joe Biden. You know, this is Georgia Jim Crow voting law narrative that we're going to deconstruct here. Joe says it's uh, sick that you're going to end voting at 5 o'clock. But that's not true. Uh, even the Washington Post gave that for Pinocchios. So Joe is either lying or uh, doesn't know what he's talking about. Very Trumpish. And now he then Goldberg then goes on to say that you know Jim Crow under Jim Crow blacks couldn't travel freely to keep their wages low. Uh, they could be lynched, beaten, robbed, or raped without meaningful recourse in the courts or protection from law enforcement. Of course, none of us are getting that anymore, I guess. Um, basically to enforce a system of apartheid. So to compare what's being done in Georgia, which is no, not materially different than the voting law, say, in New Jersey or in Delaware, which is where Joe's from, um is not really even close to the truth. And he says, if large numbers of people really do believe that, depressing doesn't begin to cover how sad that would be. And that's what's going on. So 
I mean, the corporations are all virtue signaling on it. The, Demo- the Republicans have lost corporate America, which is is what it is, but I don't know who is going to represent corporate America. I don't think corporate America will be too excited about the Democrats' treatment of them, especially when the progressives gain the whip hand. Anyway, here's a author I really never gave much consideration to, Larry McMurtry, who wrote a picture, he wrote a novel called The Last Picture Show, which was made into a movie, which is one of the more depressing movies I've ever seen, and kind of reminded me of my own high school years, you know, because we were a winning football team traditionally that had its terrible period when I was at Carmel, which was very difficult. We actually had a funeral pep rally, which years later I'm like, you know, isn't that a little overwrought? I mean, I'm on the wrestling team. I was screwing up there, so what am I going to do about the football team? I wish they played rugby at Carmel when I was there. That's what I would have been, a rugby player. Um, what? This is an article by David Eulin of the L.A. Times, and he says of McMurtry, what he understood was that the real point of the joke was that every writer is a regionalist, that literature has no center except for the human heart, which is true. He also, though, wrote Terms of Endearment, which was made into a film, and then Lonesome Dove, and he wrote the script for Brokeback Mountain. So, the article closes to with a statement saying that there's a complicated bond between identity and place, and that is certainly true. Uh, having grown up in South Shore in Chicago. You know, that was my real formative identity, no matter where I went. And I tried to blend in in other places, but fundamentally, you can take the boy out of South Shore, certainly out of the South Side, but you can't take the South Side out of the boy. Which accounts for some of the friends I've lost in the last four years, even though I did not vote for Trump. Now, here's an article by a kid who just got out of Northwestern, Nicole Stock, who I think is Hispanic. Uh, and they, she features a picture of Lori Lightfoot delivering the keynote speech during Northwestern University's virtual commencement. And I got into Northwestern, but I didn't go because I didn't get the Evans Scholarship there. And the rest is history, but... Uh, Boy, I sure as hell wouldn't have showed up for that keynote virtually. But uh, the article by Stock is about the impact of the pandemic on the class of 2020. It's titled, A Post-Pandemic Normal. A report by the American Psychological Association found that in the pandemic, Gen Zers, which is 18 to 22, I think, are doing worse mentally and physically than other generations. Now, <laughs> I, I think there's a snowflake factor here because they're probably the least likely to get it, but it did kind of ruin their, you know, imagine if you were in college and this thing happened. You'd probably just blow it off. But uh, 
More than half of younger workers, 18 to 29, said it was difficult to feel motivated to do their work while teleworking. More than any other age group. That's a lot. And I, you know, I have my struggles with it too, working from home, now that I actually have some work to do. And uh, I do know of a young fella who just, he was doing great when he first got his job. And then, you know, he got fired because he just couldn't get it done at home. So she says, there's a quote in here from a psychologist, Karen Cassidy, clinical psychologist. Used to be assumed that if you got a job, you'd be going somewhere, getting together with people, and they would become your social group, which kind of did happen to me when I got my first job, at least. And my second job, not my third. Uh, What happens is you get a job, and it doesn't matter where you live. How do you socialize when you leave campus? Uh, 18 to 23, doing worse physically and mentally. Uh, Let's see. There's still a fear piece after the pandemic supposedly, quote, unquote, over, after everybody gets vaccinated, so says Cassidy. Or no, McCarthy. Wait a minute. Screwing up my names here. Who's McCarthy? I hate this about me. Oh, this is another psychologist. Sorry. Elizabeth McCarthy, a psychotherapist. And the biggest tip she gives her patients is... uh, To be, let's see, what is it? The biggest tip she gives her patients for coping with reopening, which is kind of a nice line, is really being compassionate and curious about your internal experience, not judging the feelings that you're having. A lot of people appropriately try to avoid feelings that are heavy. I don't. I relish in them. That's why I'm so depressed. No. Uh, But we really need to make room for those heavy feelings. The best thing young adults can do is take risks, says Cassidy. I don't know about that. So that means dare to move out, dare to live on your own, dare to take that job. Well, I guess those aren't bad things to dare. But, you know, it's the old dare to be great. And let's see. Yeah, this is the same psychologist. People need community, they need to close they need close relationships, they need to know that they matter to the world and other people, and that you're doing things that matter. And as a as a podcaster with a very small audience, I I can relate to all those issues. But you know, I'm I'm not eighteen, so I don't really care. But I do a, a friend of mine died. Uh, Friday, I guess. And the wake is Tuesday night, and, and, you know, I am grappling with whether I should go, even though I have been vaccinated. uh, I'm still kind of reluctant to go out there. So I may just put a Jen Updike poem out on Legacy. But anyway, that is about the size of it, I think. Hopefully I got this all in before my hour ran out. Yep, I did. So, uh, coming next is The Week, The Week magazine. Uh, Probably do that tomorrow, and we'll go from there. So keep listening if you want me to keep talking. Spread the word. Share the link. 
with your friends or with people. If you're a sadist, share it with people you want to inflict suffering upon. And we'll talk to you soon. Live long, prosper, stay safe. Bye-bye.